So we are in a series of messages this fall called Love Handles, which I've said at the beginning of the series, I'm an expert in this subject. And uh, um, what we're trying to do is take a look at the various aspects of life that God's love does actually handle for us. And we have looked at things like our sin, that God's love handles our sin. We've looked at uh, the fact that God's love handles our guilt, that God's love can handle suffering. And today I want us to look at the truth that God's love can handle our fears. And so as we journey through uh, these various subjects, um, much of this series is uh, grounded in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. But this morning, I want to read you a portion of the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman, to the church in Rome. And I want to, I want to set that up against uh, a passage written by a different biblical author, the Apostle John, in one of his letters. Uh, he writes a shockingly similar passage. Uh, peace on love, fear, and the Spirit. And so I want us to uh, sort of look at those two passages. Um, Smitty, when you do that, when you put two things up against each other, it's called a juxtaposition. You're, You're comparing them and contrasting them, looking for what's similar and different, just so you know what we're doing there. All right, you're welcome. Um, so we're going to juxtapose these two texts this morning, and I, I want you to do that. I, as, we, as we read through these, I want you to just take note of what jumps out to you as similar from, and it's just, it's, it's, I found it very interesting and edifying that two completely different authors writing in two very different contexts write such similar words. And so we're going to start in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to read just verses 12 through 17, and then I'm going to wildly jump over to uh, the first letter of the Apostle John and read chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then uh, from the Apostle John's uh, first epistle, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son 
to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I want you to think about the people who've had the greatest influence on your life. Might be a coach, a teacher, a parent, a sibling, a friend. What relationship did fear have in their influence on you? I played a team sport in high school. And I'm, I'm thinking of one particular coach who helped me understand what it meant to take responsibility for myself. There was, and I think any of you who've played a team sport with a strong coach would understand this, there, there was some degree of fear in that coach-player relationship, right? That's, that's the guy you do not want to upset. Because when you do, there's a lot of running involved. Um, but when I think back about his influence on me as a young man, the, the predominant factor in that relationship was something more akin to a, a desire on my part to please him, not a desire on my part to avoid him or his fear, but a desire to step up and, and fulfill his positive expectations for me. Does that make sense? And I think as a parent... It is often easier to get what I want from my kid by reverting to the use of fear, right? And don't get me wrong, 
I want my kids to be a little bit afraid of dad, right? Like, like not always afraid of dad, but I want them to understand that I mean what I say. But I don't want their predominant memory of me to be that of one who grabbed the low-hanging fruit of fear in order to control them or uh, extract the behavior that I wanted. Fear is a powerful thing. And bad people who understand that aspect of human nature can use fear to control other people in horrible ways, right? I'll I'll give you another quick example. We, We go down to Cuba. We have a sister church in central Cuba. And I was there one time with a member of our church uh, whose name is Craig Russell. Many of you know him. And we're, we're just in a worship service, and Craig leans over to me, and he says, uh, he says, you know what's the hardest part of being here? I was like, what's that? He said, these people are living underneath a blanket of fear. They are oppressed by fear, and it's, he's right. It was a very accurate observation, and you, you talk to one of them, and you say something about their, their president, and they're like, no, 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 we don't talk about him. We don't, we don't talk about because people are listening. We don't talk about him. We don't, you know, and they're just, they're just afraid. So I, I suppose the, the question to begin with is what role does fear play in your own life? In your relationships, your parenting, in your work life, in your personal life, in your own psyche, to what extent are you driven by your fears? Um, And what does God, through his word, have to say to you in the midst of your fears? And so I want to begin with that uh, question. And sort of start in this passage from Romans chapter 8. Uh, just fascinating that both of these biblical authors take up the subjects of love, fear, and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something to what they're saying. And they both, in their approach to the subject of fear, draw in these similar uh, aspects of who God is and how his love handles and impacts us in our fears. So if I can sort of rephrase what Paul is saying in this portion of Romans chapter 8, I would say it this way, that we are to find peace in God's love. The first and greatest impact of God's love on our hearts needs to be that we are put at rest or at peace in our relationship to God. The hostility between my sinful nature and the righteousness of God have been laid to rest on the cross. That war has been won, and I can be at peace with my Creator for the first time in my life because of what Christ has done for me. 
this peace that we are to find in God's love comes through following the leading of the Holy Spirit. We, we talked about this in, a, in the previous portion of Romans chapter 8 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, but the, the dying to our flesh is, is not being driven by our appetites, but rather learning to be driven by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This shift that comes with the gift that Christ brings through his sacrifice and love on the cross. You have a new internal identity. That is, God's Spirit abides inside of you. This is a radical shift in the history of religion. Prior to Jesus, uh, everyone believed that God resided in the temple, that the Ark of the Covenant covered in gold was the seat of God's presence on earth. Jesus, when he dies on the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain that hides that Ark of the Covenant was torn open. As if to say, God's presence is not contained in a box. It's in each of our hearts. I cannot emphasize how radical of an idea this is and how we should truly lift our heads and and be blessed by the fact that God has chosen to reside in each of our hearts. What a beautiful and powerful image. And it's more than an image. It's a truth. It's a reality. It's a new identity that we have as Christians because Jesus has made it possible for the Spirit of God to literally live in our hearts. This is a new identity and it's a new source for internal drive. If we are not driven by the Spirit that resides in our hearts, by what are we driven? You know the answer to that question, and it's not pretty. That puts what I want up against what you want. And may the best... My money's on you, Carissa, but, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, it It pits us against each other. My appetite against your appetite, my desire against your desire. And God says, that's not what I want. I want us to come together and share one common drive, the drive of the unity of the Holy Spirit. And look what I can do when we, when we share one internal driven or driving force, the Spirit of God. And so, We're to follow His Spirit if we're going to allow God's love to handle our anger. We have to find a new source from which we live. And we need to rest in our sonship. This is a concept that was... uh, First time I heard it was was from a pastor in Philadelphia. He was the pastor of 8th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. You gotta be a humble man to hump to pastor eighth 
Presbyterian church. Like, wouldn't you want first pres? Wouldn't that be what you want? And then maybe you had to give, like, be on the JV and, and go to second pres, eighth. And couldn't they come up with a better name than eighth? It's not even a biblical number. Anyway, I digress. So, uh, this guy's name was Jack, and he was a pastor, and he was also a seminary professor for a while. And at the beginning of his life in ministry, he was a fairly wooden guy. And if you had gone to his church in the early 60s, you would not have been impressed. Pretty blah. He admits this himself. And then he's reading through the book of Romans, and he comes across this this statement that if you are children of God, then you are heirs of Christ, or with Christ. Um, And he's blown away, and he starts thinking about this and reading Scripture in light of this truth that we are God's adopted sons. The reason that, that we're called his sons is nothing to do with gender discrimination. It has to do with where in the society in, the, in which this text was written, a son who was an heir stood in a particular position of inheritance. If you were the first son, you got the whole farm, right? And your, your little brothers would just get some money or some animals, to take with them to, you know, good luck. See you later. Um, and what, what Paul is trying to say is that we are all in that first position of inheritance. We get the farm. We get all of the, of the fruit of God's love for eternity. We are in this position of stability we are to rest in our sonship as children of God, heirs with Christ. God, Jesus originally tells us, and Paul quotes him here, is our loving dad. The, the word Abba is, is more like we would say daddy. It's how a Hebrew child would have referred to their father in love. Not, uh, not you know, dad, can I have $20? But, um, daddy, I love you. All right, which I get that too. I'm, I'm not complaining. You're a good kid. Love you. Keep it up. And no, you cannot have $20. Um, she loves it when I do that. So, God is our loving dad. It's a, it's a, again, a radical shift in the history of faith that, that we go from this, this distant God who lives in a box to the God who lives in our hearts that we call him dad or daddy or papa or whatever word it is that you use to affectionately refer to your dad. God is your loving dad, and as the result, you have eternal security. You're in his hands forever. He's not going to mess this up. He's not going to fumble. He's not going to trip. 
He's got this. And he wants you to know that. You are his, and he will finish what he started. And so you can find peace in God's love. As we look at the way the Apostle John, as we shift to look at the way the Apostle John takes this subject up, he would tell us first and foremost to find strength in God's love. We are to find peace in God's love. If we're going to let God's love handle our fears, it starts with finding peace in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the rest of our eternal security. And then we look to find strength in God's love. John loves this word abide. In his gospel, he, he devotes an entire chapter, really, to this idea of abiding in Christ. And we, if we're going to find strength, must abide in God's grace. That is, we confess his son and embrace his spirit. We, you know, I almost want to apologize for giving the same points, but these passages are just so powerfully parallel to each other. Uh, it's hard to, to do anything other than just say what's there. Um, these are, I don't know if it impressed you or not, but I, I was just so blown away by how much these two authors have in common here. So, to find strength in God's love to handle our fears, we must abide in his grace and we must abide in his love. And John tells us that we are to know God's love and to believe his love. These are two very different things. I can know something and not truly, deeply believe it. I can, I can know in my head that God loves me, and I can feel very condemned and guilty and ashamed uh, at the same time. To believe that God loves me is actually one step well beyond knowing. Um, there's the famous verse that, uh, you know, you believe in God, great. Even the demons believe in God. It's more than just knowing that God exists. It's believing in your heart that he loves you. And we have to let that soak in um, If you're anything like me, your biggest enemy in this particular regard is not out there. It's in here. And we beat the tar out of ourselves emotionally and spiritually when the truth is you're loved, you're forgiven. God is smiling upon you. And we can find strength in that, even in the midst of our self-doubt and our fears. And so, we're to find peace in God's love. We're to find strength in God's love. And John moves on to tell us that we are to find confidence in God's love. This is where love conquers fear. Over the course of our life of faith, God eventually drills it into our hearts that he loves us. 
and that his love can handle anything. So we are to know that God's love is with us. This is the the first aspect of this that the Apostle John picks up in verse 17 and then in 18. His love completes you. Uh, there's, a, there's a funny word. Did you see it, the, the word perfect in there? Um, when, a, when a biblical author uses the word that we translate as perfect, you can, you can understand that as complete. There, there was no concept in the first century of what we think about as perfection. Okay? There, there was, that didn't exist back then. Uh, everybody kind of knew there was nothing that was perfect, and there was certainly nothing that was clean. Everything smelled bad, and people got it. All right. Uh, the word means whole or complete, that we are made complete in God's love, God's complete love, God's whole love. Not that we're going to be perfect. Uh, I'm sorry to the perfectionists in the room. I'm not, I don't know who to look at here. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It means that we're going to be complete. We're going to be whole through what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We're to know that God's love is with us. Did you catch that little phrase in here? That we are as he is or he is as we are in this world. Did you catch that? It's a bizarre little turn of words. And here's, here's the baffling truth that all of Christ's righteousness, truth, and power are ours in him. Like right now, we have everything that Christ stands to inherit available to us through him. The, the deposit to guarantee, <clears throat> guarantee that is the Holy Spirit within us. So, I don't live that way. I, I am still driven by my fears, by my insecurities. The truth is, I don't have to be. There is something far deeper available to me in Christ. It's God's complete love. His love completes me and his love comforts me. And so we can know that his love casts out our fears. This is a function of displacement. The more his love and his spirit fill us up, the less room we have for fear and doubt and guilt and shame and anything else that drives us downward. We have to stop periodically and come back to these truths and remind ourselves that these downward spirals that we get ourselves into are not truly who we are. There is a greater truth, a higher good that comes to us through Christ that is ours now and for eternity. We can find wholeness and comfort in him. As we know that his love is with us, we are then called to show that his love is with us. I love this aspect 
that as soon as John says, you have got to know this, he says, and you have got to show this. This has to show up in your everyday life. So if you are the parent or the boss or the coach or the child or the student or the athlete, you are called to live out of this strength of Christ within you by his Holy Spirit, to show other people around you what sacrificial love looks like, to let this new guiding force of love direct you into your relationships with those around you. You have the greatest gift that has ever been given to humankind alive within you. Let it out. Show it to the people around you. We must be the people who know what's been done for us through Christ and who show the world what that love can look like in real time.